0: Welcome to Ask the 50 Billion Dollar Man with high performance executive success coach, Dan Pena. The only show where you ask and you get complete, no holds barred answers. You want the truth? Can you handle the truth? Ask only if you dare. Head on to www.askthe50billiondollarman.com to submit your questions. And now, your host, Dan Pena.
1: My name is Dan Pena. Welcome to edition two of Ask the $50 Billion Man. Again, we're in my home uh, near the uh, South China Sea. Uh, And uh, the questions that we have are from you. Uh, And uh, I'm giving you the answers that you may or may not want to hear, Uh, but uh, they'll be based on my 40-plus years of experience And being a high-performance person in six decades and having trained, coached, and mentored for the last 21 years countless uh, mentees and devotees uh, that achieved uh, remarkable results, um, i.e., the most remarkable, obviously, is uh, creating uh, over $50 billion in um, equity and value. So let's get started. I'm currently living in central London. I'm overloaded with a lot of interesting things to do, to read, to watch, to study, to learn. I feel like there are far many uh, far many things that I can do, more things than I can do. So how do I keep focused on one thing? How do I choose what to focus uh, on my mind on in uh, order to be efficient and productive? Simple, follow your gut, follow your heart, follow your passion. If you're not passionate about it, you'll lose interest soon enough. Uh, as I said in um, the, uh, the first edition of the uh, podcast, you guys are involved in way, way, way too many things. And based on the questions that I've gotten for this, uh, this, the second edition, uh, it just reaffirms and validates and underscores what I said uh, in the first edition. Focus on the few, not the many. Um, I'm very fascinated by the concept of building the perc- uh, perfect perception. First of all, it's not the perfect perception. It's building the perception of success before you're successful. I realize that the illusion is one of the most powerful weapons. For this reason, I'm building my presence. Day by day, I'm pushing myself out of uh, my so-called comfort zone. I only see one problem. I look incredibly young. I'm 26 years old, and I look 19. I already say uh, to myself, fuck the morons. But But at the same time, I wish to look more powerful Uh, in the moment when I'm entering a room. I don't want to uh, earn their respect. I want people to wish they really have to push themselves in order to earn my respect. What can I do, Mr. Pena? It's pretty simple. Now, I know it's hard for you guys to believe, but I once looked young. I I originally grew a mustache and a beard, because I used to have a full beard in my 30s because I look so young. Of course, now I'm white, uh, and I look, you know, I don't know if I look 70, almost 70, which I am. But the bottom line is, I always dressed like this. Uh, before I discovered the three-piece suit and, and, and the pocket watch, etc. cetera, uh, I always dressed uh, uh, more mature. And as I said on London Real, uh, I uh, dressed British and I thought Yiddish. And that's a compliment both to the British and to the uh, Jew- Jewish people. Uh, you can still look good uh, and uh, be young. I've told uh, my mentees and a lot of my mentees uh, when we start have long hair. They wear uh, designer clothes, um, uh, skin-tight jeans and suits. Uh, They don't wear suits and ties, and they look even younger. I'm here to tell you, while you might not uh, be able to uh, get a three-piece suit, although a lot of my mentees have three-piece suits, uh, dress up. You look older when you wear uh, a suit. Uh, and, and a tie, and ladies, whatever the equivalent of a suit and a tie, and you look old. And then act older. Don't act, you know, don't say dude, and don't say stuff like that. I mean, act mature. Uh, my goal is 50 million euros. Uh, I have the idea, the vision, and I'm willing to pay the price to action for success. Um, I'm right now beginning to build my dream team. I want to innovate the way we are working. For this reason, I want to dominate the German market for temporary employment by acquisition in order to set new standards. Uh, Will this idea work? I don't know. Uh, I'd have to know what the temporary employment market was like in Germany. I'd have to know uh, what the competition is. I'd have to understand, and when I say I'd have to, that means you have to. Uh, You have to understand where the low-hanging fruit are, if any. Uh, I have to understand the margins. I have to understand: uh, Has it already been under consolidation? And all those questions and all those topics are answered in uh, my book uh, and uh, on my website. Uh, to confirm, as I understand, the business model you teach is to essentially buy many companies at wholesale prices, uh, lower if possible, manufacturing prices, or free, uh, or having the ownership owners pay you uh, pay you. And he says, "Ha ha!" But I have had people pay me to take their companies off their hands, then selling uh, the acquired group of companies as one uh, holding company to retail prices to an insurance company, etc. Therefore, essentially buying many wholesale and selling in retail. More specifically, applied to the property business, this would be like buying a hundred properties at fifty percent yield and selling them at ten percent yield. Okay. Um, that's not exactly what the model is it doesn't matter uh well it matters but it's the the essential driving force is not the yield per property you will not get wealthy off individual transactions and one of the reasons 95 percent of all businesses don't sell on a yearly basis is because everybody's trying to get rich off one transaction wealth is built over a series of transactions for those of you that are young uh you know in your 20s or even early 30s you can have five, six, 10, 15 transactions in your lifetime. For those of you that are old, you can still have two or three, but it's accumulating wealth through a series of transactions. Uh, and it's not buying wholesale and selling retail. It's buying strategic assets that are undervalued that when put together, and remember, structure follows strategy. When put together based on your strategy, they create more value. Uh, When when you're running a lawful, ethical, and moral company, I'd like your opinion on uh, which way to go. Let's take two Texas billionaires, uh, one deceased and uh, another self-promoter. One's Harold Simmons and one's Mark Cuban. I don't know either one of those guys. I know of their names. Possibly you can answer uh, for your listeners. Also, uh, can you shed some color on doing business Uh, with a uh, non-diplom similar to Hollywood crowd um, and your thoughts on that. Uh, Thanks uh, for the book, great book and CDs, okay. Well, my advice, and when I'm involved, it will always be honest, moral, ethical, and legal. So whatever billionaire you wanna pick, he's gotta fall into into that category. As far as dealing with the creme de la creme, the uh, shakers and movers, Uh, It's possible, it's harder because of the egos involved. I mean, some movie stars have bigger egos than billionaires, even though they're not billionaires. But again, if you have a passion and you you have a dream team and you're you're, you're depending on your mentor, your dream team, you can deal with anybody. Dan, uh, you have worked uh, with thousands of people over the past 20 plus years. What are the traits of those people uh, that have succeeded financially and those that have failed along the way? Essentially, this leads into the Dan Pena observation and lessons learned from Napoleon Hill wrote in his book. Um, It's different for all people, guys. Uh, I've seen people that have certain personality quirks, if you will, that have succeeded geometrically, and I've seen other people with the same uh, uh, traits that have failed. Uh, It depends on... The amount of passion, it depends on the amount of focus. But I do, it gets back to you. The most successful people focus on the few, not the many. The few, not the many. Uh, Napoleon Hill said it in different words, but he says, put your, all your energy and capital on one thing and lead in that one thing. Regarding consolidating an industry, Wayne Huizenga's strategy involved trading shares in the buying entity and selling entity and keeping management in place. Do you think this is better than using leverage acquisitions? Why? Uh, that was Wayne's um, uh, comfort zone, not comfort zone, that was his model. He kept management in place. He also uh, compensated them very well. Not everybody does that. Uh, uh, one of the biggest lies in business is, is when they say it's our intention not to uh, reduce staff, et cetera, et cetera. The, the magic word, the operator word is intention. As soon as they say intention, Uh, That means that they're gonna do just the opposite. Uh, It depends on your own management style and it also depends on your own strategy. Uh, uh, Do you personally still have an order of magnitude, uh, contrast 15% better than 10% fitter? No, I I don't set goals like that. Uh, uh, I always wanna be the best I can and I always wanna do things as fast as humanly possible. Uh, and um, the, and I've been that way a long time. Uh, when I started out coaching, mentoring 21 years ago, I didn't set $50 billion uh, as a goal for my mentees and devotees. I, didn't, I just want, knew that I wanted to keep refining, morphing, uh, pivoting the QLA model until it was the best on the planet. It is now that. We are not just the um, best practices, we're best of the best. I mean, there's no comparison. Nobody can, can even remotely compares to the numbers we, uh, we've produced. Uh, and the reason why nobody keeps track of the numbers is because nobody's really produced any. Um, with the wide availability of information related to the stock market across the world, do you think uh, it is still possible to have different levels of interest for the same industry across the different geographies? Um, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I understand that fully, but I wouldn't be too involved. Uh, this, the QLA is not about picking stocks. QLA is about finding something that you're passionate about and uh, implementing a, 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 a model that has worked successfully for countless people that you can start with no money. Um, how do you uh, exactly determine the other's comfort zone? By pushing buttons. At the castle Seminar, by the second day, I know what your comfort zones are. Of course, you fill out a lot of paperwork before you come to the castle Seminar. Uh, and uh, you've already taken the success test. And by the way, I recommend everybody listening to this take the success test, the optimism test and the uh, pessimism test. And our historical records uh, show that it's got about 95% uh, probability of uh, indicating whether you're going to be super successful or not. Um, but by the time you get there, I know probably more about your business than you do. And then after the first day or two, me pushing buttons in the seminar, and I restructure every seminar based on all the paperwork you fill out because we have about 1,400 uh, PowerPoint slides. And I, and I change about 20% of them for every seminar based on the uh, audience, that I, the new audiences that I have present at that time. For asset lenders, what have you seen uh, as a, um, an average ratio of loan to assets typically required. Um, I haven't seen just asset lending. Normally it's a combination of asset lending and, as I, uh, and um, cash flow lending. Uh, and they normally want a tertiary uh, method of repayment which is normally your guarantee or your house or your building or anything else you know. I think most people overestimate what they think they will uh, net from a deal. Boy, is that true. What overall transaction value or company revenue roughly would be sufficient to net $10 million and to net $100 million would you uh, multiply by 10? (coughs) Excuse me. Or is it not uh, linear? Uh, In other words, how how do we know what size deals we must be looking at to achieve our income goals? First of all, I don't want you to have income goals. Income goals are not what... QLA is all about. Uh, QLA is about building net worth through the generation of several transactions, not income. A byproduct of those transactions will be wealth, not necessarily income off of that, off of those transactions. We, uh, why are IPOs considered an exit strategy if you can't leave for years? You can't. You can't do anything with your shares for years, and during the time, the share value drop um, and or collapse completely it shows you that you're uh, uh, misinformed uh, first of all it's not for years they normally make you stick around when you go public you can't sell shares for a year sometimes it's as short as six months sometimes it's as long as two years that's number one um, number two you can leverage those shares and you and even and, uh, and sometimes you can hypothecate them S- hypothecate that means that you can borrow against them So that means your lifestyle is going to change dramatically, even if you can't sell the shares. Uh, For example, at uh, Facebook, there was a secondary market in Facebook shares before they went public. Banks were lending against them. Uh, So it is an exit. Uh, Entrepreneurs are often taught uh, that rather than uh, reinventing the wheel or trying to invent uh, the next Facebook, instead just sell what people are ready to buy Uh, to that end, with QLA, where our product, where our products, where our product is this business? Where are where, where are products in this business? How do you know uh, who to sell to? The trade publications or other sources exist to track what kinds of companies are being bought and sold, and what um, companies are doing the buying. What kind of companies or entities uh, entities buy companies? All kinds of entities buy companies, uh, but I would. As I told you before, telecommunication, which is the internet, and healthcare are the two of the hottest industries. And they have indices uh, on the internet uh, what's hot, uh, the most leading industries for sales, mergers, and acquisition, all those numbers are available now. Quite easy. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, you couldn't get that information on the internet. Um, besides vertical or lateral growth, in your experience, for what primary reason do companies or entities buy companies? For income, for tax purposes, other. Most companies acquire other companies for top line growth, meaning revenue. Most companies are not buying companies to accumulate assets, they're looking for top line growth, which will translate into bottom line growth or after tax growth. Very seldom do people buy companies for just tax purposes. That's a, a loser's game. Mr. Pena, what do you think the impact uh, or uh, of fracking in the worldwide uh, at large? I added this question as a doofus question. Uh, it doesn't matter. Unless you're in the oil and gas business, it doesn't matter. And this guy I happen to know is not in the oil and gas business. Um, Mr. Pena, aside from physical relocation, changing your friends, and mentally rehearsing new behaviors, what do you see as the top three ways for a young person to escape in the reverse their childhood preconditioning? In other words, how can you escape repeating the fates and lies of your parents? Um, in this particular case, this guy said, I already count going to your seminar QLA materials as key tools, so something different. Well, I've already given you the key tools. It isn't different. Uh, the, uh, our parents love us. They did the best they could. But in most cases, it's not, it's not necessarily uh, the right thing for us. Uh, I talk in great detail in the $50 billion ebook why I left the uh, Los Angeles area to go to Europe to put myself outside my comfort zone to get a, a, a new environment. And I wound up in the UK. Um, because even though we had high-performance people in my family, they were all, uh, nothing wrong with us, teachers, policemen, firemen, etc., but we had no business, real business entrepreneurs. And I wanted to be in a different social and economic milieu. Um, Mr. Pena, do you still find it to hold true that the relationship and chemistry continue to be the most important factors in doing business? Uh, than the right background of qualifications. Yeah, Uh, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I went to a good school at the State University in California, Uh, but I certainly didn't go to uh, one of the premier schools. Uh, And uh, I've always considered myself a wealthy guy even before I had any money because of my uh, gift for communications and my gift to get along with people. Uh, So chemistry is important, and chemistry will trump education qualifications every time. In some countries, like in the UK, qualifications and what your last name is uh, uh, can uh, hold a bearing. Uh, How would you practically take advantage of this? What character or personality traits can you demonstrate to make yourself more attractive uh, uh, to a business partner? Well, how you look. You only have one time to make a first impression. Come dressed, remember. Dress British and think Yiddish. Uh, uh, be prepared, be overly prepared. In fact, you can never be overly prepared. I mean, no matter what you do, okay. Uh, just as I was prepared, uh, and, uh, and again, I got up early for this session of the podcast uh, uh, taping uh, to review questions, uh, and just as I put in an hour or plus for every hour of the seminar, I'm, ne- I'm always uh, uh, prepared. To, uh, to excess, uh, I, I, I look at the details. Um, what in the pecking order when competing for an acquisition? Okay, who gets paid first, second, and last? There is no pecking order. The seller gets paid first. Now he only me to get a portion of it because you're paying him a salami technique, you're paying him a portion now, a portion in the year or two, and a portion later. But the seller always gets paid first. Um, your accountants, your accountants should be on a success fee basis, so they're going to be getting paid out of your proceeds. His accountants and lawyers are normally going to get paid out of uh, the seller's proceeds. Uh, your acquisition team is going to be paid out of your proceeds. Um, your board of directors is going to be paid out of your proceeds, and I suggest in hard times or good times, you always pay uh, uh, bonuses. Uh, In what order uh, should people get paid when it comes to bonuses? Uh, There is no order. Uh, It's the best, get the most, but I'm willing to eat last if I eat most. That kind of rhymes, I didn't realize that. So that means that um, uh, I get paid last as normally the largest shareholder in a transaction, uh, but I don't mind that. And sometimes on a transaction I don't get paid at all because I want to make sure everybody else gets paid. Um, in general, important factor in M&A or doing business is selecting the right financial partners. For example, investors or banks that will stay on with you during your entire length of the project, and especially uh, in the ups and downs uh, of success. Mr. Pena, what are some screening questions, uh, things to look, for, look out for, or general things to keep in mind when selecting the right financial partner? OK. First of all, guys, your first deal It's not, it's almost like you want any partner, as long as it's not drug money, it's not money laundering, you want anybody to finance finance your doofus deal. So don't be so selective. After you've done a series of transactions, then you can be more selective. Uh, So you want somebody that likes you, that likes your deal, but more importantly, they're going to like your passion. I've heard so many times, and some of the young uh, mentees that I have, they say, you know, uh, I like your energy. You know, you remind me of, uh, of me 20, 30 years ago. That's what you wanted to say. Um, Mr. Pena, uh, what are some factors aside from the board of directors, dream team, uh, and track record that you would use to attract advantageous long term lending? There aren't any. Those are the transactions, those are the uh, elements of getting somebody to uh, finance your deal. Dream team, track record that you acquire from the dream team. That's what the system's all about. Uh, Considering your experience in the internet business and that uh, crowdfunding is emerging as a useful method for raising capital for uh, mostly small or medium sized startups, how uh, would you approach using crowdfunding strategy to meet higher capital requirements? Uh, what situations would you use in it, um, it in, and where would you see it as being uh, counterproductive? Okay. Crowdfunding is also used in movie deals. You know, big actors uh, uh, use it, uh, raise, raise money uh, on the internet. Uh, I, for your first deal or two, I don't see how it can be counterproductive. Most deals are uh, initially funded by friends, fools, and family. Uh, credit cards etc uh, this crowdfunding through the, via the internet has given another opportunity another medium to raise money uh, I have not used crowdfunding although uh, uh, I'm looking at it for one particular transaction now uh, we're not sure uh, whether we'll use that or not but we're looking at one transaction I'll be able to tell you more about it later as an animal lover I this this is a cute question. As an animal lover, which animal do you think best personifies the traits necessary in order to achieve success in business? Well, I'm probably expected to say a pit bull or something like that. Uh, but my favorite dogs are uh, Great Danes, and I've had Great Danes since 1974. Uh, I currently have one Great Dane left, uh, and, uh, but I also uh, have a boxer, and I've had a number of other dogs, but I like Great Danes because their size, perception is reality. But I like gentle Great Danes, and normally Great Danes are very gentle. But a pit bull is what I think you're getting at. Um, How did you finance your personal overhead uh, while building Great Western? Credit cards, loans against my house. Uh, when I had no money. What percentage of deals work out? Which sectors have the highest percentage? 99 or 95 deals out of 100 you have to look at before you find one. And then a good percentage of the deals that you'll initially try won't work out because of your inexperience until your green team gels as a team than a higher percentage. There is, no, there is no set percentage of what works out. And what sectors have the highest percentage? All sectors are different. Uh, when is the money made in an acquisition? What is the most critical factor in Eras pay price? Uh, what is the, where, when is the money made in an acquisition? The money made in an acquisition is at exit. The initial money in an acquisition is made if you can overfinance it. Uh, what was the most common feature of your greatest success? Market size, market type, uh, exit vehicle type. Um, well, I've got a number of great, uh, big successes, uh, but uh, I, I have to say that um, the uh, healthcare, uh, the oil and gas business early on in my career, uh, internet. What were the main milestones in the corporate ascendance? Um, of Klaus Kleinfeld. Well, this is public record. I met Klaus Kleinfeld in 97, 98. He came to me as a middle manager with Siemens, the 20th or so largest company in the world at the time. Uh, and seven years later, uh, through my mentorship and with my guidance, he became CEO. Uh, he went from a middle manager to uh, running a, a big uh, healthcare division, as I recall. Then he went from there to being chief operating officer of. Siemens um, USA, then he went to being Chief Executive of Siemens USA, then he went to being uh, on the Corporate Executive Board about the same time, and European companies have a uh, supervisory board, and then underneath that, a Corporate Executive Board, where the leading uh, division heads and CEO are, and from the Corporate Executive Board, he was appointed in uh, January, February 2005, Chief Executive. Uh, Klaus is my greatest uh, corporate success story. Um, And at the same time, he grew Siemens uh, substantially. Uh, Siemens at that time had about $100 billion in revenue and about 400,000 employees. What was uh, the... If you go public, what is the percentage of assets you were able to uh, deaccumulate at the favorable price? Uh, I don't. Uh, you, it's not deaccumulate at a favorable price. Um, what I think he's asking is, once you've gone public, what assets can you sell off? Well, as long as you, there's no covenants or restrictions, you can sell off any assets as long as you control the board of directors. Can you tell me more about the healthcare deal um, taken private in the UK? I, I think I told you it was Crestacare, Care. It was a. a, a, a private uh, publicly held uh, company uh, the chairman was based in Scotland uh, we uh, bought the public shares out and we merged it with another company I believe it was called uh, uh, four seasons uh, and uh, we added new debt and equity it was a private company uh, alchemy was the uh, main private equity um, provider and um, the uh, it was is a very good transaction uh, why pull out money for a deal when you are personally guaranteeing it anyway? If you pull out money in a transaction during good times and bad times, even though you're guaranteeing it, because you don't want to go be at the end of a life cycle and have not made any money. And there's nothing illegal with it. Again, 95% of the companies that are for sale worldwide don't sell because everybody's trying to ask for too much money because they haven't pulled any money out <coughs> during the lifetime or the life cycle. Um, what document did, uh, let's see, you said the Icelandic companies were over leveraged and I was invited by the uh, Icelandic government to look at five or six companies about 2000, 2001. How did I know they were over leveraged? Simple analysis of the balance sheet, you know, they had way too much debt (coughs) uh, uh, vis-a-vis their assets and their debt service was, it was pretty huge. And so if there was any change in the economy, any change, a major change in interest rates, they were going to be in trouble. Um, how did I purchase an option on American property which was uh, we went public? Well, as, as I've told before, I, uh, uh, as far as we can tell, I was the first person to ever take an option public. Meaning, like most of you understand an option on a building, an option on a piece of property. You give them some money. For an option to do something with the property over six months or two years or three years. Uh, in my particular case, I gave $60,000 up front with an option to pay $2 million or a dollars in six months and I took that option public. So I had invested $60,000. I then took it public on the London Stock Exchange uh, and uh, the market cap uh, upon uh um, Uh, the IPO, which happened to be on my 39th birthday, which was no coincidence, uh, was uh, approximately 50 million pounds. uh, In dollar terms, uh, I guess that's about 100 million. Now, everybody told me that I couldn't go take that option public because nobody had done it before. Needless to say, we did it. Uh, Everybody told me we couldn't go on August the 10th, which happened to be my birthday. It was very important to me to go on my birthday because Mrs. Thatcher, as I explained in my $50 billion ebook, was taking one of her first major privatizations, uh, Jaguar Public, on that same day. I said, I don't give a shit. We're doing it on that day. Okay. So because of my crack stockbrokers and my investment bank at the time, they used to call them merchant banks, we sold the shit out of the deal. Uh, and uh, on the day, uh, the stock, the, the, the newspaper headlines read the day after. The one that really roared, Great Western Resources, up 20%. And if I remember correctly, um, uh, Mrs. Thatcher's um, uh, Jaguar was down about 15 20%. So to this day, it's a sexual experience for me to ride in a Jaguar uh, when I do from time to time because they use those as limousines in uh, the UK because it brings back fond memories of that uh, when I went heads up with the UK government and, and I whipped them. Um, What did your 100-hour work week look like at GWRI, Great the Resources? Well, 100 hours was on a good week. Um, Many weeks it was more than 100 hours, but um, uh, part of that regimen always, uh, that 100-hour work week was three, four, five times a week. I went to the gym for about an hour, but most of the time it was in meetings. Most of the time, it was uh, uh, looking at acquisition candidates. Most of the time, it was uh, raising additional capital. Uh, And a good portion of that time was dedicated to refinancing uh, existing uh, finances. It would be great, I, I smile when I say this because it would be great if Mr. Pena could give uh, some coaching on how to raise 10,000 pounds of disposable cash that would uh, give to me uh, to come to the seminar. Uh, the uh, That's not what this is all about. you know. I, I can only take 10, 12, 13 people per seminar. Uh, I only give two or three seminars a year. This year I'll, I'll give three. Um, I might give a fourth. We'll see. Um, although August seminar is pretty much sold out uh, we, uh, when all, all the money should be in uh, in, in the next few days. Um, but all the material to be successful is in the book. All the material you need to be successful are, uh, you can get from the free uh, material on my website uh, and on Torrent. I highly recommend you do that. I'm not suggesting that you go out and spend 10,000 pounds. For those of you that don't live in Europe, I mean, you gotta get there and get back, so I mean, it's an expensive venture. And the reason why I make it so expensive is I want you to pay the price to action. As I've told before, and and I've written an an e-book and in newsletters, I used to give the seminar away for free in the 90s. I used to fill big auditoriums, five, six, seven, eight hundred people. I got free uh, public service awards uh, for doing that, but my results were pretty crap. Uh, Although they were pretty good for the industry, they were shit for me. So I realized when people get something for nothing. Now, you may ask, well, Dan, you're giving the material away for nothing. Well, since most people can't afford, and I only want to deal now in my latter years as I'm running out of runway, with the people that are really dedicated, the people that really want to be high performance people. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have the PPP, we have the penny payment plan now to correspond with the tough financial times. We have a student plan. We only allow four students per seminar and the two students have to share two rooms. And they have two beds in each room. And we have, the, they have a reduced price for students. Uh, and we have the payment plan for people that, you know, where you have to pay for a year. Uh, you pay 25% down and then you pay for a year. Uh, but you got plenty. We have, we have devotees and uh, that have made a lot of money that never came to the seminar, the castle. Now, some of them came to the old seminars that I used to give uh, out on a worldwide basis, but the results from the castle are much greater. So you don't need this. So I decided four years ago that I, you know, in the last few years that I'm going to do this, I want to deal with the, the best of the best, or at least the people that are willing to pay, uh, pay the price and sacrifice. Uh, not so much in money because, I mean, it's, it's a pain in the ass for me to beat, beat on you for a year. At the end of that year, you're successful. But not everybody, a lot of people talk about wanting to be successful. Not, not everybody really wants to. Uh, I was looking at some of my videos from years ago, and some guy called me a psychopath um, when I was talking about commitment. And if I have to be a psychopath like Pena, then I don't want success. Well, fine. Then don't bother me. Fuck off. Um... I'm not reading the questions that have asked me about it, hallucinogenic drugs, but I, I put them there, they're, they're fairly amusing, that they uh, seem to think that, you know, uh, as I might have mentioned in session one, that it's a, a mind-blowing experience and it, it, it allows you to overcome your fears and it allows you to, 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 to be high on life. Well, as I'm, I'm sure I said in the first, first uh, podcast, I was high, I've been on high on life since I'm 21 years old. I don't need something to, you know, hallucinogenic to alter my my mind. Uh, but for those of you that want to do that, and for those of you that feel comfortable with that, God bless you, Buddha le- bless you, and Allah bless you. Um, um, you should have him. Uh, oh. Uh, can you walk through the exact steps of the 800 or the 50 million dollars uh, first year in revenue I did by myself, and uh, how I turned 820 into 450 million? Okay, <clears throat> I'm going to make a short addition. Uh, I looked at the oil industry in the early 80s and saw that there was an oversupply <coughs> of petroleum products specifically jet fuel, uh, excuse me, there was an undersupply. the refinery was only operating between 40 and 60 percent capacity. Yet the federal government had constant contracts for jet fuel, JP 4 and 5. So I convinced Marion Refinery in, uh, I believe it was Alabama, if I could show you a way, and it's one of my favorite sayings, if I could show you a way where I could, we could use your refinery 70, 80 percent, with no additional work. Would you be interested? Obviously, the answer is yes. Uh, and I said, it's through federal and government contracts. They said, we don't want to fuck with that because the contracts are a lot of pain in the ass. And you had to fill, In those days, you had to fill out paperwork three feet high. I said, I'll do that for you. I, got, I bid and I got a $20 million contract and a $20 million contract and a $10 million contract. For $50,540,000, my first year in business, I had no employees, I had a leased fax machine and a phone, uh, and the rest is history, and I've been writing that story ever since. Uh, nobody like a government agency, federal government, municipal government, city government, overpays like them to this day. Who else sells ashtrays or buys ashtrays for 600 bucks or toilet seats for 600 bucks, ashtrays for 100 bucks? The federal government. Okay. Next, how did I turn $820 into $450 million in eight eight years when the market was going from $40 a barrel oil to $8 a barrel oil? After we went public and I drilled 25 or 30 dry holes on that option property that I talked about a few minutes ago, I realized I I couldn't find oil, even though with my great green team. So I told everybody, we're taking big pay cuts. And we are now going to be acquisition guys, and we're going to go buy companies. We're going to buy our way out of this problem. We're going to buy assets. It's a lot easier to buy revenue, guys, than it is created. That's what the acquisition model is all about. So we went around, and we made a number of acquisitions. The first acquisition, we overpaid because the oil kept dropping. The second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, kept overpaying because the price of oil kept dropping. But at the bottom, I uh, hit it for six or hit a grandstand home run by buying Bow Valley USA for about $135 million, all in with all the other assets, about $155 million. Average price of oil I paid, I think we paid 6 bucks a barrel, and then oil went back up. But I kept taking risks. I kept swinging at the plate. I didn't give up. Uh, then we made a, many more acquisitions after that, and we got the market cap uh, when I decided to retire up to about $450 million. Uh, and uh, at various stages, I owned between 80 60 and 40%. Uh, and when the company was acquired, Uh, In uh, 1997, I was still the largest single shareholder. Uh, That's the short answer. Um, uh, Question, um, happy uh, QLA. How can we see uh, the seminar? The seminar, the entire seminar is not on YouTube. Portions of the seminar are on YouTube. Uh, Portions of the seminar are on iTunes. I think we've uploaded about 50 items on iTunes, and we're going to be uploading more of my uh, information uh, as time goes on, plus we're going to be making these uh, additional additions. My plan is to do as many of the video YouTube stroke iTunes podcasts as I can, but I also will do... Just the audio when I'm out of the country, if uh, so, too much time doesn't pass, so uh, there's a constant flow of information. Uh, the first uh, uh, episode uh, we tested, I think, it was about an hour and 50 minutes. We're going to test on the results and see how that is. Uh, this one will be a, a, a little less. Uh, the I have no intention of doing an interview format. I uh, I'm going to continue to answer questions. Uh, And uh, as long as we keep getting questions, and I hope we do, and so far we've gotten a lot of questions. Uh, So far we've gotten questions I could do 30, 40, or 50 hours of uh, uh, podcasts. Uh, And uh, from time to time uh, I will uh, share stories of um, uh, mentees. uh, Not just success stories, but also some of their failures, so you can learn from them but my intention is not to interview mentees on this format. Um, okay. Okay, I don't know, um, but a topic that I'm uh, interested in, hopefully your, your people will be interested in, um, how has lending in the UK changed? Has it tightened up or has it, got, uh, has it tightened up? The answer is yes, it has tightened up, but it's still not impossible. Uh, You just, as I said, uh, I I believe in the last uh, podcast, you just have to make more presentations. Uh, Have you uh, seen a tightening of investment criteria from venture capitalists or business angels? Actually, I haven't. I haven't seen that. I have seen uh, that it's, in some regards, they're even more interested in investing the money because there seems to be less deals. And why are there less deals? Because you guys are been blinded by the press. You've been blinded by some of these other uh, uh, things that you read that it's tougher now. So you've drawn in your horns and you're not putting deals out there. So that means they have more money to get out uh, to uh, for investments uh, than they had before. Um, how do you get an expert at managing your um, your, your state, uh, meaning your deal. You're meeting and focusing on a very important subject and nobody gives bad news. Uh, what they're asking is, and this is broken English because this guy's uh, language, uh, first English is in his first language. How do you get somebody to manage your, 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 your business if you're always spending time raising money and looking at deals? Well, that's what your dream team's for. Again, guys, I keep getting back to it. It's dream team, dream team, dream team. Mentor, mentor, mentor. Uh, hey Dan, I'm a 20 year old student who hasn't accomplished much in life. Uh, I understand discipline. Do you need an education uh, to make a lot of money? I've said this before, the answer is no. Education's better, but as I, I talk about my phenom, the 18 year old phenom, who by the way is going to be 19 in August, he reminds me, who graduates from high school, or graduated from high school recently, uh, the, uh, you don't. Know, if you have the passion, if you, if you if you've got it in your belly, uh, go out and try it. You're still young enough; you can always go back to school. Um, if 20 or 60 percent IRRs are considered very good in private equity, how do entrepreneurs manage to parlay small businesses into multi-billion-dollar business, multi-million or billion-dollar businesses, uh, enterprise in five to eight years? Like I did, okay? Uh, what do you? Uh, what do they do? Uh, differently than the financiers of Wall Street. And whatever they they do differently, why don't the Wall Streeters do it? Because the individual entrepreneur is willing to take more risk than the investment bank. And the individual entrepreneur can move his little ship in between the big battleships a lot quicker and he can make decisions. The reason why companies like Microsoft, as great a company as it is, has slowed down its growth is because it takes them so darn long to make decisions. And that's what we as a small entrepreneur have the luxury of doing that the big companies don't. Um, How do you prepare for international deals? It's no different. International deals are the same as domestic deals. Other than your dream team and your advisors have to be cognizant of the rules, regulations, the taxation authorities, and how it may differentiate from uh, where you're used to doing business. Uh, what is the best advice that, um, advice you received that you did not find useful at first? This is a great question. The best advice that I, adv- that I received that I didn't find useful at f- first was from Costa Grazos, one of my mentors, who is the CEO of the shipping lines. He's the right-hand man of Aristotle and Nassas for 60-plus years and my mentor, God rest his soul, in the early 80s. Uh, Costa, and he never called me Dan or Danny. He always called me Mr. Pena. When I first met him, I called him Mr. Grazos, and then I called him Constantine, and towards the end of our relationship, I called him Costa. Uh, His advice was uh, that uh, don't diversify. Uh, And I'll tell you a little story. We're standing in Olympic Towers on uh, Fifth Avenue, and he said, Mr. Pena, we own this building. It's only 40% occupied. We diversified because we made so much money in shipping. We owned 107 ships with no debt. Uh, and uh, we uh, were making cash just by the boatloads, pun intended. So we bought this building. We don't know how to run it. We barely got it built. Uh, in conjunction with that, we, we started Olympic Airlines, which was a, airlines, uh, a Greek airlines and uh, they lost money, lost money, lost money. They finally gave it to the Greek government. He says the biggest mistake everybody makes is they diversify because everybody says you've got to spread your risk. He gave the same advice as Andrew Carnegie some 80 years before that. Find and invest your capital in what you know and lead in it. I didn't understand that and I got involved in a number of tangents. Fire Resources is an example, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you may ask, well, Dan, you're involved in a lot of deals through your mentees, so aren't you over-diversifying? Yeah, but I'm not running those businesses. Even if I'm non-executive chairman, I'm not running those businesses. And the person that is running them is in charge, not me. I'm a non-executive director. The person that is in charge of those businesses has to stay focused on the few, not the many. So the the best advice, I didn't take it uh, uh, to to heart, is uh, don't diversify, Mr. Pena. Stay focused. Uh, There's so many good and bad things happening around the world. Oh, okay. I, uh, I want to bring this, sh- this shorter second edition to a close uh, by saying a couple things. Uh, number one, <clears throat> we uh, often get involved with the minutian life and the minutian business. We all have baggage. We all have problems. Uh, the uh, I believe last session I talked about my regrets, and mm-hmm. my Regrets haven't changed any, I still have them, but we all have regrets. But as I've told my children countless times, it's not what happens to you in life, kids, it's how we react or interpret or define what happens to us in life that really counts. Bad things happen to good people all the time. Bad things happen to good companies all the time. Uh, And that's just part of life, that's part of the cycle. Now, uh, I'm not here to, you know, for those of you that believe in things that I may not believe in, and for those of you that may believe in uh, taking hallucinogenic drugs, I don't particularly believe in that, so I don't. I'm one of the only people you know that grew up through the 60s that didn't do drugs. And I tell the story, why don't you do drugs, Dan? I mean, everybody did it. Not everybody, but uh, a lot of people did it. One of the reasons I didn't do it is because my father, who was a policeman, and I told you about how strict he was. And speaking of strict, when I went off to volunteer for the Army in 1966 as a 20-year-old, I thought the Army was fucking easy compared to being raised by my dad. My dad was tough, okay? But getting back to, I didn't do drugs because my dad said that um, there's only one cure for drugs, and that's a fucking bullet in your head. And as he held a revolver to my head, and he says, Dan, I'm, I'm the one that'll do it. Pull the trigger. That had that had a lasting impression on me, and I didn't do drugs. Now I tease and I tell people when I'm 80 years old and uh, a little more than 10 years, I may do drugs. We'll see what happens. My wife Sally uh, says that that's bullshit. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but all kidding aside, uh, we all have baggage, and what I find universally across the board, talking to you kids, is that. Uh, you, you you worry about stuff that isn't really important. Uh, I'm not telling you to forsake your family. I'm not telling you to forsake your loved ones. I'm not telling you to forsake your God if you believe in God, Allah, Buddha, whoever. But what I am telling you is you spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about things that don't make a shit. I worry about virtually nothing. If my wife was sitting here, she'd tell you, Dan doesn't worry about anything. Like I say, if a plane goes down, there'll be one survivor, it's gonna be me. If a ship sinks, and there've been a few unfortunate catastrophes with sunken ships in recent months, uh, I'm gonna be a survivor because I I think of my life in that way. Uh, And uh, that's why I continue to press uh, the envelope on the emotional scale and. We have two bank accounts in life. We have an emotional bank account and we have a financial bank account. All you guys, all you kids, are worried about the financial bank account because that's how your parents thought, that's how your grandparents thought, and that's how you think, and that's probably how you're training your kids to think. It's your emotional bank account that I'm worried about, not worried about, concerned about, and that's what I build, is emotional bank accounts. I look forward to my number three, uh, uh, podcast uh, and uh, I'm going to be traveling uh, I look forward to seeing as many of you as I can on my trips I'm going to be in Africa um, and I'm going to be I believe in Russia and the Scandinavian countries um, and of course I'll be at the castle uh, uh, in not-too-distant future and now I, uh, I'm going to Sri Lanka to visit a, a, a mentee nun who's living in the jungle in Sri Lanka now, who has just recently moved from here. But anyway, keep the questions coming in. And I'm very much interested in your comments. God bless. Peace.
0: This is AskThe50BillionDollarMan.com's official disclaimer. Comments, questions, and remarks made during any part of this podcast are intended to generate discussion and reflection, but are not legal, accounting, tax, investment, appraisal, medical, or other professional advice or instructions, or factual reporting, all of which are expressly disclaimed. Remember, investigate before you invest. We can't do that for you. You are solely responsible for your investigation, analysis, and decisions made with your independent professional advisors, familiar with your specific and verified facts, and current applicable laws and regulations. Reliance on this podcast, its contents, or its participants for any personal or business decision, including but not limited to legal, investment, or other financial decisions, is disclaimed. No comment, question, or remark or other content shall be or be construed as an express or implied promise undertaking contract or agreement or a waiver of any part of this disclaimer or applicable laws. The owners and distributors disclaim any obligation to supplement, correct, or modify the content of any podcast. No content shall be deemed to encourage evasion or disobedience of any law or the submission to jurisdiction in any country. Reliance upon any facts assumed to be true for the podcast is disclaimed. Persons or entities referred to are fictional, and no depiction or reference to any person or entity is intended. Any seeming resemblance to an actual person or entity is entirely coincidental. All content is copyrighted and may not be used without written permission from Dan S. Pena, Sr.